Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 287 for another of our movie roundtable sessions in which we continue to discuss films that have some sort of relevance to the themes explored on The Mind Renewed over the last nine and a half years. And as this is the year 2022, if any of you have noticed, the film we are going to be discussing today is actually set in 2022 and is also a perfect match for TMR in many ways. We cannot do other than discuss it at some point this year, so we're going to be doing so today, and that is the 1973 eco-dystopian classic thriller Soylent Green, starring Charlton Heston, Lee Taylor-Young, and the super veteran of cinema, Edward G. Robinson. Um, And as this is number 11 in the series, uh, the point at which I said I shall no longer be listing the films we've already discussed, I shall therefore refrain from saying that we have already discussed The Brotherhood of the Bell, Batman the Movie, 12 Monkeys, The Illustrated Man, Silent Running, The Insider, The Shout, Groundhog Day, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Capricorn One, and today, the film that we've already said we're going to be talking about, um, all of which you will find via the Topics tab on the Mind Renewed website under the heading Movie Roundtables. So today for Soylent Green, we are joined by our crew of top-notch culture critics, Frank Johnson in California, Mark Campbell in Crayford, and Anthony Rattuno in a secret location, as usual, in a UK town known only to himself and MI5. Gentlemen, welcome back to uh, TMR Movie Roundtable. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thanks, Julian. It's great to have all of you back on the show. Thanks ever so much for agreeing to come on again. So uh, I'm going to ask us now about, well, actually, before I ask about our experiences with this film, I do want to make a bit of a silly spoiler alert, because uh, I think we're going to have to assume with this that everybody or virtually everybody knows this film and how it turns out at the end, because we just can't discuss it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in case there is somebody out there who doesn't know this film, Please do go and watch it first and then come back and listen to this. Otherwise, this is going to be one massive spoiler here today. (laughs) We've got to assume that people do know it. Um, So, okay, what is your personal experience with this movie? When did you first see it? How has your perception of it changed over the years, if it has? Um, Frank, when did you first see it? Um, So my first time seeing this movie was um, through some sort of reconnection after high school with my English teacher. She ended up loaning me a copy of Soylent Green because she thought it was thematically or at least in a similar vein as the book we had read in one of her classes, The Giver, in that it's kind of dystopian and chilling, I guess. So I was about maybe 18 or 19, and I I thought it was really well done and uh, kind of an unsettling movie. And um, there's always one line that stuck with me all this time. When he tells the woman he was having a relationship with that you're a hell of a piece of furniture, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. that, that, that line stuck with me for 20 years, probably 20 years. Yeah, I thought you were going to say because Soylent Green is people. That that was the other line. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was the other line that stuck with it. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> blown it yeah, yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> yeah no, we gave it already didn't we? So. yeah sure yeah uh anthony your first experience with this film yeah i have a very vague memory of watching this 25 30 years ago because when i was quite young like a young teenager i kind of worked my way through all the classics but now i think of it whenever i go to watch a film and i can't remember anything about it i kind of discount it so this is almost a first watch or i watched it about a month ago when you first mentioned it and i thought it was good but for some reason i guess because the podcast was coming up i just looked a bit closer and i i 
watched a couple of short analysis videos and it, it seemed to be better, even though it was only a month ago. <laughs> it seemed to be better. And uh, yeah, I've got a couple of favourite lines. Maybe I'll tell you later if you want. But um, mm. yeah, I re really liked it. I mean, with Charlton Heston, unfortunately, I kind of grew up with um, him at his most wooden. In the, He made one of those air, airport films, really awful. And then I watched The Ten Commandments, which wasn't wasn't bad but i always just associated him with being very wooden but i i really liked him in this and i loved the chemistry with edward g robinson i mean i just love edward g robinson anyway so mm -hmm. um yeah i had a good experience with it yeah mark you must have uh, seen it as usual around the same time as i did <laughs> <laughs> i think we saw it together i'm pretty sure that we both saw it for the first time together actually when we were sharing digs in london so in the late 80s Mm -hmm. because I remember you commenting on there's a particular scene that's quite violent and you know somebody assassinates someone else which you, I'm sure you'll discuss and you, you remember thinking well it's too violent it's too horrible you probably don't even remember that <laughs> no I actually don't remember that um, no not at all I know I that mean, I had I, watched it years and years ago but I couldn't remember what the context was yeah there was amazing called Starburst which I used to get when I was I think it came out in sort of 78 79 and that talked about a lot of films that I was too young to see so they talked about Saul and Green there so I knew of it but um, it wasn't until I was sort of 18 that I think I first watched it. Um, and I suppose my initial, I think, I think to be honest, my initial reaction was, gosh, those, those titles, that music, is this a real science fiction film? Which is a brilliant way of starting the film. Wrong foots you from the off, I think. Well, yes, that's I, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really quick question. Is this quite a famous film or not? It's funny about a famous film because Sarah's dad, mm. he's a bit of a science fiction fan, never heard of it. Yeah, I'd barely um, heard of it. It was weird. I know here in the States, it's not super famous, but like it's been referenced in uh, different popular culture here and there. Like, I think I swear the Simpsons probably mentioned it. So there is some awareness of it in the mm. popular culture here. Yeah, actually, there was a uh, on Facebook when I was on there more. There was a drink that came out, some sort of um, soy uh, protein supplement or something. Yeah, yeah. And it was called Soylent. It's like a yeah. coffee drink or something. And I'm like, did you guys really research yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody was pulling a joke on them and the, and the marketing or the product. No, I yeah, I'm <laughs> seeing a massive post at Chan Cross Station and thinking, mm -hmm. what is this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is this a massive joke? What's going on? Yeah. yeah. I just feel like in a parallel universe, the final line could be one of those really famous movie lines. But mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But I'd never, yeah, I'd never heard it. Strange, because I've, I've watched loads of these dystopian things. I don't know how it slipped through the net, but you know. I think it's quite a famous last line. It's sort of greenest people. Mm. For me, that's a famous line, but um, referenced mm. in, was it Cloud Atlas? One of the characters shouts that. I think he's been taken out of a care home or something, and he shouts it, sort of greenest people. Yeah. I suppose at the Oscars, maybe when they go through famous lines, they probably wouldn't want to include that, would they? Yeah. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a big, massive spoiler line, isn't it, really? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. the punchline of the movie, yeah. <laughs> That's the trouble. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, I saw it about a month ago or so to decide, you know, is this worth doing? And then I looked at it again a few days ago. And the first time I just thought, actually, uh, this is a bit overrated. I'm not sure it's that great. And then a couple of days ago, I thought, oh, this is a really good film. So I don't know. It's, it's just a change of mood. I don't know what it was. Um, I sort of equated it a bit with Capricorn 1, funnily enough, in that they're, hmm. they're both doing a slightly similar thing. And they're both slightly flawed, but sort of entertaining you know mm. i put it mm. on about that level as it myself yeah mm. i think this is less flawed actually than capricorn one um, well, maybe, yeah. Some, yeah but there are some things i agree with you um no doubt we'll talk about those um okay so i'm going to give my brief 
plot summary yeah. here, which is not brief. <laughs> so for people who <laughs> never seen it or uh, I don't know if you've never seen it, go and see it first. Um, if you saw it a long time ago and you don't remember it, here goes. Um, so um, after a montage of old photographs, so that's a very strange way to begin, great way to begin, um, illustrating the industrialization and increasing human population of the U.S. over the last hundred years or so, we are introduced to New York City in the year 2022 a place that is now vastly overcrowded with some implausibly 40 million inhabitants, mostly unemployed and impoverished without clean water or proper food, while a small, predominantly male elite has everything it needs in plush, well-guarded apartments, including furniture, not the kind of furniture one might imagine, but young women who serve as concubines to their rich masters. The majority, the poor, survive only on Wafer foods manufactured by the Soylent Corporation in three wonderful varieties, yellow, red, and the new, more nutritious green, supposedly made from plankton, while the elite continue to enjoy their fruit and vegetables and even meat from time to time. New York City, we discover, is a microcosm of the world itself, now struggling under the ruinous pressures of overpopulation, global warming, and industrial pollution. So living together in New York City in quite cramped conditions, but they do have a roof over their heads, are police detective Robert Thorne, played by Charlton Heston, and his older friend Sol Roth, played by Edward G. Robinson, a retired college professor who serves as Thorne's book which is like a, a police researcher who assists with investigations. Now, being a police detective, Thorne is required to do some police detecting, and so he is asked to investigate the murder of a rich and well-connected man called William R. Simonson, played by Joseph Cotton, who happens to be on the board of the massive Soylent Corporation itself. Thorne quickly suspects assassination. After questioning Simonson's furniture, a young woman named Sherl played by Lee Taylor Young, Thorne discovers that Simonson had recently been confiding in a priest who Thorne subsequently visits, only to find that the priest is completely burnt out dealing with homeless people and reluctant to share details about Simonson's message. Nevertheless, that's enough for the powers that be to get the uh, priest shut up by him being murdered. Thorne is told to drop the case, but he refuses, in spite of attempts on his own life, in the line of duty, he carries on. Meanwhile, Sol decides to investigate two volumes that Thorne had taken from Simonson's apartment called Soylent Oceanographic Survey Report 2015 to 2019. Very strange to see those dates there, 2015 to 2019. Um, these volumes Sol takes to uh, a library called the Supreme Exchange, where fellow books meet to discuss legal matters. Together they discover that Soylent Green, the new high-energy food from Soylent Corporation, is not being produced from plankton, as the corporation was claiming, but from the corpses of human beings processed via the city's human waste disposal plants. The oceans are dying, and the only sustainable protein source is now the bodies of the dead. What's more, it seems Simonson's assassination was arranged by fellow Soylent board members because they feared that he was close to spilling the beans on the operation. Sol is depressed by the findings, and he decides to go home, a euphemism for availing oneself of the services of the quite popular government euthanasia centre. As Sol is being treated with great respect, the government dignifies death. Sick culture. Thorne arrives too late to stop his friend from going home, but not too late to learn the truth. Thus, Thorne goes into enhanced action mode and follows the waste disposal trucks into the Soylent Human Waste Disposal Stroke Human Biscuit Making Factory, where he witnesses the horrific truth right before his eyes. 
from shrouded bodies through flesh dissolving vats to freeze dried soylent green crackers on conveyor belts he sees it all with the evidence now upon his lips he escapes but then gets shot down by soylent operatives as paramedics arrive to tend to thorn thorn pleads with his boss lieutenant Hatcher, or Lieutenant Hatcher, that his message might reach the books and the Supreme Exchange and, and therefore have a chance of reaching the Council of Nations. Hatcher says he will, but we suspect he won't. And the film ends as Thorne cries out in anguish to the people around him. Soylent Green is people. There we are. Grim, but that's it, isn't it? <laughs> that's quite yeah. short. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I tried to go at some pace. I hope people followed it. <laughs> That was very well written, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I did have to write that bit. <laughs> All right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so uh, released in 1973 by Metro Golden Mare, directed by Richard Fleischer, who is actually a name I'm not familiar with, although I do recognise quite a few of his films over many decades. Quite a lot of films, actually. Are you chaps familiar with Richard Fleischer? I know him from Temberlington Place. As you know, Julian, I'm very interested in that, in the real case there, so... And I look through his filmography, yeah, yeah, it goes back to the 40s, something like that. I'd never heard of him. Yeah, I don't know a lot of his films, though. No. Looking at the list, actually, quite a lot of films I've seen. There's an amazing film called The Boston Strangler. Oh, yeah. Extraordinary yeah. film. I don't know if anybody's seen that, where no. it's the, the way it's made. You know the split screens that they did a lot of those in the late 60s, early 70s? Yeah. It's full of split screen work, sometimes like five or six images going on at the same time. Oh, um, yes. all the way through the film and it says weird things with film ratios and picture sizes it's really 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 interesting ahead of its time film that's the Tony kind Curtis of, wasn't it yeah and the subject matter is really grim and um, it's done in very documentary style it's a really interesting film actually yeah and all that split screen stuff does that actually work or is that just a fad I mean some of it does it takes a while to get used to because there's so much of it but there are very clever scenes where say somebody's walking up the stairs who's I think about to get killed well there's another screen showing you the room they're going to walk into uh, um, yes, so it's, yes, it's yes. almost like CCTV if you were to sort of well almost like reality TV shows yeah it's actually really really ahead of its time Benny Curtis is amazing really good I re- recommend that oh Surprised to hear that because oh. I looked at this list and we've got Doctor Doolittle here, um, I, and Twin, <laughs> very Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I think I did see that. I've certainly seen Tora Tora Tora, Tora that, which yeah. is a brilliant film. That is an excellent yeah, film. Yeah, like Maybe Barabbas as well. I may have seen, uh, but I don't recognise the others. Ten Rooms Places. Oh yes, that's right. Fantastic Voyage. I do. Yes, that that is. Yeah, that's Donald Pleasance is in that, isn't he? I'm sure mm. he is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, produced by Walter Seltzer and Russell Thatcher, screenplay by Stanley R. Greenberg, which was based on a 1966 book, by the way, this film, uh, called Make Room, Make Room by a chap called Harry Harrison. Now, we'll talk more about that uh, in a bit. I just wanted to know, has anybody actually read that book? No, I didn't. I looked question. for it for years. Oh, sorry. No, no, I, was uh-huh. say, I, um, I, I haven't, but I have a question for the group. I'll give it later. I haven't read it. Okay. I had heard of it, though. I've, I've read some of his books. I've read the Stainless Steel Rat books, but uh, I haven't read that one. The Stainless Steel Rat books. That's the only Harry Harrison books I've mm-hmm. ever been able to find. Weird title. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Make room, make room. I think they did better with Soylent Green, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Soylent Green is a weird title, don't you think? It doesn't tell you anything about the film. It's a kind of title that you might have seen the film, but you might have forgotten the title because it's, it's a made-up word. 
Um, I think it makes you ask the question, what's this about? Which continues into the film, doesn't it? Because of course, now we've we've seen it and we're familiar with it. We don't have that same anticipation of what's going to happen at the end. But imagining Mm -hmm. oneself, projecting oneself back into the first experience. That's how it was, wasn't it? What on earth is going to happen? How is this going to resolve itself? The title itself, I think, invites one into that experience. Mm. So it's soybeans and lentils, is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute. So the music by Fred Myro, with the assistance apparently of Mark Fleischer, Richard Fleischer's son. Uh, so Richard Fleischer says that is the original music, of course, because there's so much classical music in this film. Um, there is some kind of nude swimming, isn't there, with the frosted glass <laughs> lovemaking scene between Charlton Heston and Lee Turley Young. So that that counts. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let's let's uh, talk about the cast then. So Charlton Heston. What do you reckon? Was, it, was that a good choice for Thorne, Robert Thorne, as this detective? Yeah, as not a big fan of his, I thought it really worked actually. Yeah. He looked good in his cap. I know it's a small detail, but he just somehow he just somehow kind of looked the part somehow. And um, I like the chemistry with Edward G. Robinson, but I must say that yeah. if you've seen Double Indemnity, which is one of my oh. very favourite films that Edward G. Robinson made in in the forties, I think he had a great chemistry with a younger guy in that film. So I think a lot of it was to do with Edward G. Robinson. But yeah, I thought Heston was all right. I mean, it's I'm not sure I buy him as a very dramatic actor, but yeah, as a sort of action man, I guess. Not yeah. bad. <laughs> He's got that ability to sort of have the world on his shoulders, doesn't he? Like a, a man of sort of integrity, at least deep inside, that carries the world's hope on his shoulders. He's good at that kind of thing, I think. Yeah. To piggyback on that, Julian, this is like um, almost typecast for him at this point, because I don't know the timeline of this, but he has been in, you know, he was in Planet of the Apes. That was an apocalyptic movie. He was also in the Omega Man, where I feel almost the Omega Man is almost very similar to this in that he's, you know, he dies at the end and he's very, um, it's very symbolic and, yeah, dramatic and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, I was reminded of that watching this again. I kept Mm -hmm. having fullbacks to the Omega Man. I mean, I think he's good in it, but I had a problem, I suppose, with his age. The timeline of the film, if it takes place in 2022 and he's in his 40s, then he would remember all that stuff. It should be a younger person that was born after all the animals and all the forests disappeared. I think so, because if you remember, Cheryl, who must be, well, she says she's 21 and says she's lying, but she's she's clearly in her 20s. Um, She says that her grandmother had a funeral. And I thought, okay, so it wasn't that long ago then that things were different. So you're right. Yeah, they hadn't really thought that one out, had they? No, I I mean, I was actually thinking it would be interesting to see it remade. Uh, I I wouldn't mind seeing a a good remake of it. And you'd cast a much younger person, you know, almost a teenager, even perhaps an early 20s, I think would make slightly more sense of the timeline. But as as has been said here, the the chemistry between him and Edward D. Robinson is brilliant and it's very believable. Yeah. Yeah. They just Mm -hmm. look like they're chatting and and sort of improvising almost. Mm. Part of it they did improvise, apparently. You know, that eating scene will come to later. It's amazing. It was improvised. Incredible. I read that. I read an interesting bit of trivia. Apparently, Edward D. Robinson was obviously died before it came out to me, but he was almost completely deaf and apparently he, didn't, he wouldn't yeah. hear Richard Fleischer shout mm. cut, so he'd carry on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully someone nudged him fairly quickly. You know, mm. It would be a bit cruel otherwise. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he died 12 days after filming this from cancer, apparently. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think his death in the film was his last scene he shot. So, right. you know, wow. him dying yeah. in the film is a few days before he died in real life. <clears throat> 
Yeah, and that's I, I, why Heston was crying. You know, he had he had to cry because he was seeing all these nature scenes he'd not seen before. Um, those tears were real, apparently, because he was just thinking, oh, crumbs, there's my friend lying there as he will be just short days from now, you know. So, yeah, hmm. absolutely. Um, I was actually quite impressed by Lee Taylor Young. I think she did a very good job um, having to just sort of be like human furniture. And I think she really did that well. She just stood motionless most of the time and just did everything with her face. And I thought she pulled off those different combinations of emotions very well. Yeah, I was really grossed out on her behalf, not by her, but the fact she just has to be available for the next person. That, yeah. yeah. Gross, isn't it? But It is. Yeah, she's yeah. lovely. Uh, obviously, yeah, again, chemistry was good, I suppose. So, um, yeah. I mean, I thought that you call it a lovemaking scene. There's not much love in it. But I, I love, the, <laughs> I do think that's stylistically brilliant, the way they're just discussing the plot and discussing the case while they're getting undressed and getting to bed and they don't make any reference to what they're about to do it's just a transaction isn't it between two people absolutely um, yeah because that's what that she was really kind of yes yes yeah exactly but that's, how, that she, that's really how she survives well. doesn't she in that culture yeah i mean I thought that was done very well it was almost so subtly you had to think, wait, wait a minute hang on what's going on here? <laughs> yes. yeah it was very well done yeah, I might just add, for those who might be concerned about such matters, you don't really see anything, so it's all implied. No, no. <laughs> um, and even in the shower scene, apparently, they were actually wearing clothes behind that frosted glass. So uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, Hang on, so you said um, there's no nude swimming? I'm afraid not. That's why I asked you, okay. are you in the nude, Mark? Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, that, that, that saves the day. Um, <laughs> all right, um, there, was, there were some sort of supporting roles here, uh, which were quite significant, I think, as well. Um, for me, the one that really stood out was Leonard Stone as Charles, the house manager um, of Simon's oh, apartment yes. block. Um, very, very strange, sort of sycophant, abuser character. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought he did, did that incredibly well. You could see he hated Thorne really wanted to kill him on the spot, was terrified by him at the same time. That was a really good bit of acting there. I enjoyed that. I thought it was interesting what he was wearing as well. He was wearing a kind of bright red, like a riding, you know, you see these, mm. the, the jackets that the right people wear, fox hunters. But, uh, it was yeah. just like made him stand out more, didn't it? It's this, he's kind of rather effeminate, wasn't he? Was he supposed to be homosexual? Was it, was it, and then he would he hit the furniture, the prostitutes, they would really whack them and hit them really hard. Very mm. unpleasant character, as you say, stood out, didn't it, in, amongst the other mm. cast? Yeah, that was really memorable for me. That when he was mm. the manager was there, yeah. <laughs> and he was so polite to I visitors. It's such a <laughs> weird contrast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Not so sure about Chuck Connors. He was quite good at fighting. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> he was all right, sales, but yeah. Yeah, he's all right. Okay. Joseph Cotton, though. Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, I, I don't feel like he had loads to do in this, but I love Joseph Cotton, you know, all the Orson Welles stuff. And mm. he made a film called Niagara with Marilyn Monroe, which I haven't yes. seen for years. I really would like to see that one again. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. I've seen it quite recently. It is excellent. Yeah, yeah, I really want to go back to that. But he's just got that gravitas, hasn't he? You know? Yes. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I like Edward. Obviously, Edward G. Robinson had a lot more to do than Cotton here, but, mm. you know, he did what he needed to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't really need to try, did he? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Just works. Just being on the set worked. Yeah. Just be Joseph Cotton. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's sort of his character, isn't it? That he just accepts his fate. Uh, doesn't fight against it at all, does he? So, as you say, he didn't need to do anything. And in fact, that's the character, just very, very passive. Yes. Yeah, yeah so that's this very, is William yeah. R. Simonson who gets uh, assassinated, just for, <laughs> we know what we're talking about. Um, and he's in this plush apartment and he just basically 
waits for the assassin to arrive because he mm-hmm. he knows that the corporation want him because he's been letting the cat out of the bag slowly and he thinks well that's it then <laughs> he just resigns himself in, um, to his fate yeah yeah in uh, yes minister they'd call him unsound wouldn't they julian and mark he's become unsound Mm. yeah i I like how the the assassin was quite apologetic about it wasn't he yeah cotton (laughs) Cotton was resigned to it and the assassin was apologetic so i just thought it was really interesting i've never seen a an assassination like that especially one so brutal you know using that weapon and i like the way that the script does this all the time it doesn't make things obvious but if you sort of read between the lines there's a bit where he asks Charlton Heston asks someone, can you read? And so there's implications. A lot of people are uneducated, can't yes. read. And they live in their cars. That's the other thing. They, they live in their car. So this assassin, I think, lives in his car with his yeah. wife and baby or whatever. Just that's where it exists. And he's having, presumably he's been told to, to say this line by rote. You know, you've got to say this first, then you kill him. And the, the guy, the assassin, really doesn't have a clue what he's mm. doing. Is he? He's just being used completely. Mm. I thought that's a really interesting detail about the, the education system in the future, if you like. Yeah, yeah it's it's because it's of that, actually, yeah. It's interesting that we see we see those crowd scenes, you know, where the, everyone starts to revolt when the soil and green runs out, but you still can't get your head around 40 million people. Mm. I almost feel like <laughs> there, was, there was room for some sort of aerial shot where you just see millions of people. It's very, this is really just very, very enclosed, isn't it? You're just seeing a tiny little bit of what's actually going on. I don't mm. know. I think they possibly could have expanded that a little bit, although those crowd scenes were quite good. And, yeah, know, I thought so. Yeah, I think they filmed it on the old MGM backlot. I think it was like the last thing they ever filmed before they tore it down. Oh, That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. I suppose those particular crowds were there for picking up their Soylent food, weren't they, for the week on a Tuesday or whatever it was for Soylent Green. Yes. So they were all there at the same time. And uh, I really enjoyed the scoops because the police mm. announced, yeah. didn't they? Okay, we've run out of Soylent Green now, so it's time to go home. I didn't really give people much of a chance to move because there were so many people packed together. And then the scoops came along and started scooping people up and putting them in the yeah. back of the, the trucks. And, you know, some commentators have said how ridiculous that is and how laughable. And, you know, I think it's the shock element, you know. It is. You do yeah. sort of want to laugh at it. But then when I saw it again recently, this for the second time, I thought, what's actually unbelievable about that if it was happening? If it was happening, you'd have no choice. There'd be nowhere to go. You would end up on that scoop. Mm. You'd be off balance. Nothing you could do. Some people do actually get out of that situation but you know i think that would happen that way and um yeah it's a bit Mm. yeah no totally it reminded me um okay the the, the series called the goodies right some of you might Mm -hmm. recall the goodies which was a bbc sort of anarchic comedy with tim brooke taylor bill oddie and um grand garden and they okay and they would i mean i loved watching that as a child and they would they would take a very bizarre surreal situation and then they would just extend it logically to its conclusion and i thought this was very similar it's almost like the sort of thing they would have done the goodies for laughs. But yes, here, you like mean. you say, yeah. it's bizarre and surreal and strange, but it would it's totally consistent with yes, the world the that they created. Life is cheap, life is meaningless. Um, yeah. therefore these are these are not real people. They they're, they're not even educated, they're just food machines, they just want to eat. So you just scoot them up, they presumably take them somewhere and they probably just mm-hmm. recycle them. They wouldn't care about them. Mm-hmm. And it's all done for real. These are real, you know, stunt people being thrown in the back of I mean, obviously there's some mattresses hidden outside, but even <laughs> So yes. it's pretty scary stuff. <laughs> it's symbolic yeah, as well. It's symbolic as well, yeah. isn't it? The scooping up, you know, scooping mm-hmm. up people. They're almost expendable. Yeah. There's just so yeah. many of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there's no law or order, is there? So there's no recourse. Mm -hmm. you, there's nothing you can do. It's been announced by the police, and that's it. Okay, well, you should be home by now, you know? <laughs> you only give it a few mm. seconds to get home. Well, that's it. The police have said it, so you're fair game. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, how I read that. Yeah, I would, I would say um, that, you know, seeing how things have been going the last two or three years with the government's overreaching everything anyways, like, mm. that's really not implausible for me to expect them to use scoops to get rid of a lot of people, you know? <laughs> yes. I do I do know what you mean. Actually, when that yeah. guy, that policeman was using the loud hailer or the bullhorn, I was reminded of some of those scenes in Canada, in Ottawa, where the police were yeah. walking through yeah. the streets saying, please, uh, you know, disperse, 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 disperse. exactly right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or else the scenes of uh, there was some wasn't there a football match a few months ago in um, oh gosh I don't know anything about football was it France they went to, yeah it was France wasn't it and there was some problem with the tickets and lots of people came over from the UK and they couldn't get in and they weren't writing but there was general confusion and yeah. the, the French just sprayed wow. them or families children whatever just sprayed wow. them and there were lots of injuries and stuff you think this is they weren't writing no. they were they paid money to go to a sporting event you know and it was it wasn't their fault that they were sort of couldn't get in. Yeah, I was going to say that about 10 years ago, I was quite involved with some activists in London and I didn't really know these people, but they made a film. I think it was it was G7 or G8 in Toronto, 2010. They made a film about it and the police are very, very heavy handed. And they, they actually ended up in these kind of jails, basically, with um, guards keeping them up all night. So <laughs> mm. I think protests look quite yeah. a bit like that nowadays. Tasers very heavy hands. That's the other reason I want poo-poo the idea of those scoopers. Now, like back then, maybe, but now, now you see it almost. It's almost to that level, really. You could, have a, you could have a humane scooper, couldn't you? <laughs> just scoop them. I mean, I'm sure someone's yeah, working James. on one. And the lack of technology as well. You're just using these. They're like just diggers, aren't they? Really, um, something special. Yeah. About. But that was quite consistent as well because the technology didn't seem to have moved on very much. No, there was no. a little bit extra in the elite quarters because uh, she's playing a computer game, isn't she, that uh, <laughs> Simonson's bought for her. Um, but apart from that, it makes one question whether it really should be called a science fiction film at all. Yeah. Using the dustbin lorries to, you know, mm. to take away the corpses, of course. Yes. Yeah. There's a Ray Bradbury short story. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, all it is is it's a dustman or whatever you call them. It's just going home to his wife and explaining the fact that uh, he's been instructed that if there is a third world war, he's going to have to, him and his colleagues are going to have to cart away all the corpses in the dustbin lorry. Yeah. Quite low key, but that kind of reminded me of, of that whole scene with the, with the dustbin lorries. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, I thought can it was I really good at can I, Yeah, go on. Can I just say hats? <laughs> you can. Well, I mean, there was, I, I never struck me. Everyone was wearing a hat. Hats were all over the place. Mm. Presumably that was because of the dust, wasn't it? I couldn't work out whether it was or the dust or the, the, heat, the, but the sun. Was, yeah. You know, the environment's so bad that the sun's like burning everybody. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was. Well, that predates the ozone layer crisis by quite a bit. Mm. Uh, there were some masks as well, I noticed. Yes, yes. But then I guess those masks made sense because they were dealing with dust particles rather than microscopic viral particles. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Could I um, just ask a question? Uh, sort of a question to the group about this. The book was written in 66. Do we know mm. in the environmental movement and this whole, whether you call it propaganda or a movement, whatever you want to call it, when it actually started? Because Mark and Julian, I know, it was on Tomorrow's World, wasn't it, in about the 70s, but they were predicting an ice age at one point, weren't they? Oh, oh uh, yeah. That's what I was told you know, in school. Do you know when the environmental movement actually started or, or got moving? I always thought of it as a 70s thing, but maybe it was earlier. 
It, there was definitely some in the 60s. I actually looked up online um, just a couple of days ago because we were talking about climate change with my boss and I. And um, yeah. I, I remember seeing somewhere there's at least 50 years worth of uh, climate crises. You can go back and look where they made different predictions. And that goes at least back to the 60s, obviously. I, I think in the 60s, it really started in earnest. I yeah. think that's when you had, you know, the 50s, you kind of had nothing much going on. But then that's, I think the 60s is when the social and whatever other things they were trying to make those changes and stuff then. Because, yeah, I feel like the late 60s, late 60s yeah. kind of 67. That's when it really started to kick up. But there was some in the early 60s. And, and like, you know, a lot of the predictions, I, I think there was, it, it was interspersed with a lot of like global warming crises. Mm. There was quite a bit of global cooling and lots of predictions for an ice age um, yes. in the 60s and 70s. Um, and this movie is an outgrowth of this overpopulation thing. Um, mm. That's why I think Harrison wrote the story he did. And that's why this movie got picked up, I think, probably is because in the 60s, there was like a brief window where they were trying to use overpopulation as like a crisis point. And I, I don't yeah. think it really caught on as well as they had hoped. And that's why they kind of just stuck with global cooling and then when when they the models for that didn't pan out they, they switched it to warming because it was getting warmer <laughs> all, all while neglecting the fact that there's probably some sort of cyclical thing with the sun you know yeah i just thought 66 yeah. was a bit early at all no uh, yeah, it goes well, back uh, some mm, small different announcements and papers and stuff goes back to at least 1960 i think Oh, okay. I think also, actually, the reason why I think the 60s, too, is because, you know, in 63, you had Kennedy assassinated. And in my opinion, I think that was kind of like the last time we had like a real elected leader here in the U.S. The people wanted him kind of thing. And then our quote unquote deep state, you know, got rid of him because he wouldn't quite go along with what they wanted, you know. And I think after he was gone in 63, that's, I think, when you started to see these other agendas kind of making their way. And I'm sure it started earlier, but, you know they started to pick up speed after JFK was shot. Not that he was the lone obstacle in their way, but it just seems like after that, things picked up a little bit. That's my shoot from the hip answer anyway. Yeah. Well, I remember from my conversations with Dr. Tim Ball that the club of Rome kicked off in the 1960s and, Um, you know, they want global governance and, uh, they were picking up on Thomas Malthus and the idea that population would outstrip, resources and that sort of thing and they turned it to all resources so it wasn't just food it was like all the all the earth's resources they created it was a book called the first global revolution i think it was where they said that the real enemy is man himself you know Mm. um so this idea of overpopulation was a big thing there with them in the 60s and they also talked about using the climate climate change as a way of unifying the world you know so Mm. that agenda was certainly there in the 60s which of course led to agenda 21 and the earth charter and all this stuff later yeah. um yeah so that sort of thing was was in the air when uh, harry harrison's book was written um interesting mm. yeah. i wanted to backtrack really quick when you're talking about supporting cast mm. uh, this is more like geeky nerdy trivia but um his boss charlton heston's boss was played by um was he a lieutenant or captain what was his rank exactly i don't remember i think he was um, lieutenant frank lieutenant um, lieutenant okay <laughs> um, yeah. well, as Brock Peters. No, he, yeah, he was played by Brock Peters, and um, he shows up in a lot of sci-fi stuff. Actually, he was um, the, the trivia point is is he played the voice of Darth Vader in the Star Wars audio dramas. So all you know, the Star Wars, Empire <laughs> Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. He was actually the voice of Darth Vader on the radio play, not in the movies, uh, obviously. Yeah, and then he also had um, 
cross-pollination over into Star Trek, which I know is not your guys' thing, but <laughs> he played a corrupt admiral in, I think, Star Trek Six, And I think he was also in Star Trek Four, maybe, um, as a different admiral. And then he also did another role in Star Trek as uh, Captain Sisko's dad in uh, Deep Space Nine. His other performances are, are usually really good, too. So, um, did he always play corrupt characters? No, most of his, uh, most of them are actually decent. Like uh, playing Captain Cisco's dad, he was like a, a chef in Louisiana or something in the future, uh, okay. <laughs> which is interesting because they have replicators that can make whatever food you want. So if a guy can be a chef, I guess it must say something. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he say as well, the boss, that in the last twenty-four hours there have been one hundred and thirty-seven reported murders? Yeah. Didn't he say that? that right? Yeah, I think so. He said since we talked, and I think that was the previous day. Like I said, we don't really get to see the scale. We see a few crowd mm. scenes, but mm. it's very mm. hard to imagine the scale of this thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, he uses that as an excuse, that. doesn't he, to say, oh, let, let's just drop the Simonson's case. Isn't that right? Simonson case? Yeah. yeah. He'll hide it. I think he, he says the expression, he'll he'll hide it away mm. if uh, Charles Heston agrees to sign it off. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But I did, I did think that that excuse was very lame because presumably all these other deaths were sort of the proles, so they don't matter anyway. But Simonson is like this member of the board of Soylent. <laughs> How are you going to justify hiding that one? But uh, oh yeah, I'm sure there was a way of doing it. Um, I thought the script was pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were a couple of lines, actually, I wanted to point out, if you don't mind. The priest yeah. says, the truth is killing me. I mean, it's a bit on the nose, perhaps. It's not, you know, it's not very subtle, but... And then um, I think it's Thorne's boss who we were just talking about. You're bought as soon as they pay you a salary. Yeah. A, not a bad line, because I think nowadays we all kind of understand about wage slavery. But perhaps in those days, I don't know if they did. You know, hard to know, isn't it? It was a good line, certainly. I felt like the priest, and obviously Siemenson, although he didn't say it, I think the truth was basically killing him, wasn't it? That's why he didn't really resist when the assassin came for yeah. him. I thought um, the director says that the guy who played the priest is a good actor, and I'm sure that's the case. But I didn't find that characterization convincing, and I think that may be the director's fault rather than the actor. Because this idea that he was burnt out, this priest, for sure, but he was also carrying this this dreadful secret that Simonson had told him. Mm. I, I just thought he was moving around like a zombie, and I thought, are you trying to sort of compress all that exhaustion and that weight on your shoulders yeah. into a sort of one emotion it didn't work for me. I thought you should have been more evasive and, yeah, tired, but sort of want to tell him, but distracting himself. And, and yeah, it could, it could have been a mixture of emotions. I, I didn't find that convincing. There we are. I think that was the director's fault. Um, did I get this right? When uh, the assassin kills the priest, he comes mm. into the confessional and says, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. He did actually say that, didn't he? I believe so, he, yeah. And then he said, I, I, my last confession was six months ago, and then he shot him, so touch of dark humor there just the fact that he confessed before he did the uh, before he did the killing yeah yeah Yeah, there were some touches of humor in there they wanted to do that so that it wasn't just unremittingly depressing all the time i think that worked yeah um but i didn't notice any of those info dumps you know where you tell the audience the plot through what the characters say i didn't notice any of those There there was one moment when sol the Edward G. Robinson character is saying something a bit like that. And then Thorne, uh, Charlton Heston, echoes his words at the same time, as if he constantly says that. And I thought that was a way of covering over the fact that, you know, it was information that Thorne should have known, which we didn't know, and the audience needed to hear. Um, But by doing it that way, it was like he was saying, oh, come on, you're saying this again. 
I even know you're, what you're going to say next, you know, and it worked by covering it in that way. But it was the only moment I thought where well, that kind of thing happened, but they got away with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wasn't Edward G. Robinson just brilliant? I mean, he was very I mean, good. He's obviously, you know, he, he's had such a long career. He's just one of those people, a bit like mm. Joseph Cotton, yeah. just a few lines and a look and it conveys so yeah. much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like Particularly said, during that eating scene. That was wonderful. Mm. I thought it was interesting that um, Thorne says to him, he's sort of mocking him, very gently mocking him, sort of saying, when you were young, people were better. And it kind of struck me that I think if you look at any point in history, people are always probably saying that people were nicer back then, you know? And I uh, mm. just want to share one thing. I've always been very interested in the Titanic story. And on the 100th anniversary, which was 2012, my lovely mother got me some replica newspapers from 1912. And it was absolutely fascinating. The two things that stood out was, number one, the writing in those days, very poetic, the journalism. And the other thing was that I read a whole edition of, I don't know which newspaper it was, one of the American ones, and they just kept going on about the pace of modern life. It sort of struck me, do you think that in every point of history, people are probably always saying the same thing, that, you know, life's going too fast and... You know, it makes yeah, you maybe. wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. There's always been a pining for the good old days. I think so, yeah. Can you imagine if, you know, we were back in like 300 BC and they were saying, oh, people were much nicer in 400 BC. <laughs> <laughs> it's not beyond the realms of possibility, is it? I've heard people pine for the war years. Um, right. because ah. of the you know the camaraderie that was experienced yeah. so there can be so even in really difficult times there can be some aspect of it that is good and one can perhaps you know put to the back of your mind some of the grotesque parts of it and remember the good bits and yeah i've heard people say oh yeah back when i was in the, the navy or whatever you know it was it was so different then and <laughs> it's interesting yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i wanted to go back to this make room make room there were some differences i've not read the book um but there were some differences in apparently the cannibalism theme is not in the book um it's all about overpopulation yeah so the overpopulation resources being hoarded by a small elite class overcrowding uh this kind of stuff's all in there crumbling infrastructure but yeah the cannibalism thing is not there so that was for the oh. movie yeah, and, and the furniture business as well. Sherl is the name of, of the lady in it, but she's living mistress of a rich criminal, um, but she's not uh, furniture. Hmm. Yeah, soylent, yeah, soylent steaks are mentioned in the book. Soy and lentils, they're not human hmm. beings. So, yeah, the, making that into human beings is the thing that just the film does. Weird. Oh, so you're saying the whole soylent green is people thing is not there at all? No, no, no. It sounds to me like the book is not as interesting as the film. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's what I was just going to say. <laughs> I mean, that was a great change in that case. I mean, it's, it's classic stuff. Yeah, I think so. And I think actually the furniture business was a good idea. And apparently Harrison is quoted as saying that the furniture girls are not what the film is about. It's completely irrelevant. But I don't know. I think it does. It contributes to that sense of you know, the valuelessness of human life in that culture. Yeah. Um, so I think it mm. does work. So I, I wonder why he said that. Um, He's just mad that they did a better job with his story than they did. <laughs> maybe did. that's true. <laughs> Although Fleischer says that he he appeared on the set many times and got everybody oh, got okay. on everybody and enjoyed himself. So he never complained. So I don't yeah, know. Maybe it's a context thing in a conversation yeah. that we haven't got the context. I, don't know. I, try, I tried to look up the that quote and find the context, but I couldn't. Those things have disappeared down the memory hole. <laughs> um, that's the way it goes. Another thing that's uh, changed is the police detective is called Andy Rush, not Robert Thorne in the book. Um, Wonder why? I had a bit of um, I had a bit of trivia that's not going to change anybody's life. Um, Robert Thorne is also the name of Gregory Peck's character in The Omen. Oh, 
Obviously, this was before uh, the so? Yeah, it's just, it's just <laughs> weird because there's not that many cases where the lead character in two different films has exactly the same name. Like I say, it's not going to change anyone's life. Mm, it just changed my life. Oh, did it? Oh, well, <laughs> How long for, though? Yeah, that's uh, uh, done, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I did wonder is whether the name change was made to fit in with a theme. Now, I don't know whether there's any truth to this, but looking at the other names, the uh, Sol, the Edward G. Robinson character, because Sol is the Roman sun god. And it, it, can be, yes. yeah. it can be a Jewish name, which can mean um, wood, so a dweller of a wood, so that's a sort of nature thing. <laughs> when the uh, Lita Leung character, Sherl, well, apparently that comes from Shire, deriving probably from the Old English, a woodland clearing, another sort of nature theme. And I wondered, therefore, whether the name Thorn was a change, because mm. that means Thornbush, Old English, a dweller who lives by a thornbush. So I just wondered if that was all, you know, because they're all characters who are fighting on the side of nature, aren't they, rather than on the side mm. of industrialization. So I wondered if that was what's done. Possibly. Yes. I took Thorn to be sort of like literally a thorn in the side of the establishment, really. Oh, that's yeah. the way I read it. Yeah, could be. Uh, could be both. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to wait till you're back, Mark, because uh, I thought you might want to have some input on the eating scene. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> which you have mentioned, which was I think we've already said it was not in the book. It was not even in the screenplay, apparently. They just hit upon the idea. I thought, well, okay, why don't we just do some eating here with these wonderful products, um, <laughs> this fruit and this meat? And so they rang up the producers to say, can we have an extra half day to do this? And they gave them the permission and they just improvised it. Um, yeah. Worked incredibly well. They looked at the food with real like awe in their eyes, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I think yeah. it's very funny the reaction of Charlton Heston when he eats the lettuce because he just goes, no, no, whatever. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it is. There are no words, are there? No, it's a key what? scene, isn't it? Because, you know, this is, these are characters sharing an incredibly simple pleasure that we take for granted, and they're treating it like it's caviar or whatever, something they've never yes. never eaten. But I think you're supposed to imagine that he's never eaten it before, Charlton Heston. Uh, and he, I, guess, uh, I guess that's um, right, yeah. I, so I suppose the experience was beyond words, literally. Because um, yeah. Sol says, l'chaim, to life, doesn't he? And, the, and that's it. Then after that, you just hear crunching and grunting yeah. and chuckles. I'm glad they did that because that was a major part of the film for me. I love that scene. It's very touching. It's a very touching scene, isn't it, between them, I think. Yeah, celebrating a lost world there. Um, they weren't related, were they, in the film? Just friends or colleagues? I think so. Yeah, definitely a father and son vibe going on there, wasn't it? Not an actual father and son. Yeah. Mm. As we said earlier, I think the chemistry was fantastic. Yeah. Mm. Are there any other scenes which uh, struck you, any of you? <laughs> While you're thinking of that, I just want to mention the first spoken words that is not on a television. And that's the first words are spoken by Sol. He turns the television off because Governor Santini is talking about Soylent Green. And uh, he just says BS and turns the TV off. And those are the first spoken words to the film. I thought, great. <laughs> Good way to start. Yeah, I mean, for me, the film is, is a bit of a game of two halves. The first half... I think I felt this when I first watched it. It's, it's, it's a bit cheap looking, a bit TV movie looking. A lot of the interiors and the sets, it's a bit brightly lit. Yeah. Um, and I know that's the kind of world they're portraying is sort of cheap and tatty, but it kind of looks a bit cheap and tatty. But then from that crowd scene, the riot scene on, I think you get the riot scene. Then you get quite quickly Edward G. Robinson going to that place and 
seeing all those amazing uh, images and then you get the revelation from then on it really really for me becomes a very epic incredibly powerful film but up until then with the police procedure and the it's also 60s well i know it's made in the 70s but like late 60s early 70s view of the future it's it's dated mm -hmm. i guess but yes about halfway through for me it goes bang and then it really you know hits the mark um mm. So I think the key scene for me is probably the, the right scene because then from then on, well, no, that, I mean, the key scene for me is when he goes and he dies, Edward G. Robinson dies. It's such a powerful that's, that's oh, yeah, scene. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, but watching it again, I don't think it's ever said openly. I, mean, I know we all know what's happening, but I don't think it's ever said openly what he's doing. And he's, I don't think you've ever shown him being injected with anything or, or nothing like that at all. It's very obvious what's happening, but it's clever that you assume it, whereas they don't actually say anything. They don't mention mm. euthanasia or anything, do they? Doesn't he drink? Uh, doesn't um, he drink? Some yes, he venom? does drink. Yeah, he, he does. Some poison. He, ah, he drinks right, something. Yeah. Right. But I think yeah. he just it's, he just says he's going home, doesn't he? It's it's fairly yeah. obvious, but yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, I like the way. I mean, any other film I've had, you know, euthanasia center or something like that over the top. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and I had a memory, and obviously I'm remembering it from something else that that there was some financial incentive in him doing that, or there would be some money given to his people he lived with, but nothing, there was nothing like that at all, was there? No. There was no incentive was a, on, on your relatives to go and do that. Uh, don't remember anything like that, sir. There was a door with beneficiaries written on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah. Because that would sort of make sense in a way. That would be a good impulse. You know, go and kill yourself because you can give $20 to your children sort of thing. But I don't remember that being in the film, so I must have just made that up in my head. Yeah. I thought Save it for the remake. <laughs> yes, right. I yes. totally agree with you. Yeah, what you said earlier that this was ripe for a remake because it's what you're saying, mm. Mark. Yeah, the point I was trying to make earlier it's weirdly small scale, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's, there's some lovely map painting shots of the city, but they're kind of empty until you get the rights. There's no real sense of the of the scale of the thing. Yeah, there really isn't. But that's um, the sister suicide. And it's an interest, interesting scene because they're so polite, aren't they? Then you Absolutely. think it's so yeah. disgustingly Absolutely. clinical at the mm. same time. It's full-on irony, isn't it? Of course. It really yeah. is. I think the first mm. time I saw it, I was more taken by the sense of the loss, you know, looking at all those nature scenes and thinking, oh, yeah, all that nature has gone. But I think yeah. seeing it again, it's more the irony of just how poorly people were treated generally in the culture. But when they decide to end it all, the state says, oh, now we're going to give you some respect. And that was yeah. just horrific. You know, they, they take his arm and they smile at him and they ask him which colour he'd like and he says orange. Yeah. And then when he goes through, he finds these priestess kind of figures there with, in white and orange. They put on the, the right robes for him and the orange light comes on and then the light's classical music that he has chosen is all very cultural and lovely. And, and I just thought, oh, this is total contrast with what your life before. You were stuck in this little room. Yeah. And if you did anything wrong, the state would, you know, dump you in the back of a truck somewhere and just thought, oh, yeah. that's what that's about, isn't it? The disgusting contrast there. Yeah, um, the, even the classical music, for some reason, it gave me a weird feeling. It's almost like, oh, would you like Beethoven or Mozart, you know, <laughs> in your final <laughs> moments? It was just so weird, you know. Reminded yeah. me, actually, weirdly, of a, there's a Bond film where the villain <laughs> feeds people to sharks and plays classical music at the same time. Oh. <laughs> Which one is it? Oh, yes. yeah. Probably Live and Let the, Die, right? Is it? I don't Spy know. Spy Love Me, isn't it? Oh, Spy Love Me, Yes. All the screens come down, classical music. That's it. Which always is more, yeah. classical music always more horrific when there's something horrific happening. So. <laughs> 
Mm. That contrast, mm. isn't it? Yeah, mm. this is the contrast. Of course, at the end of that scene as well, you get the contrast again, don't you? Because his body is then put through a door, like at the end of a funeral, and then Thorn goes to find out what's going on, and the body just gets dumped into one of these garbage trucks. Yeah. So once the ceremony's over, you're back to the reality of you didn't really mean anything to this state. It doesn't care anything about you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And dumped in the back of trucks by these men wearing black balaclavas as well. It's even more <laughs> disturbing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you could almost imagine the staff at the end of the day saying, oh, how many do we have today? Oh, we had uh, 45. <laughs> you know, I mean, not not meaning that they're laughing at uh, really, but having to do the yeah. admin, you know? Yeah, it's a very yeah. strange scene. Of course, when you know that Edward G. Robinson was about to die in real life, and as yes. you said, when Thorne arrives, I mean, that's a fantastic mm. scene. You know? It's kind of sword shot in a different light, because... I always think of him as this wooden character, although I like him in Touch of Evil. There's a little Orson Welles connection. There's Joseph Cotton work with Orson Welles, and Touch of Evil is mm. a great film. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Edward G. Robinson's wife couldn't go to the studio those days, apparently, because uh, she just couldn't bear to see him there on the bed, as he would be just in a couple of weeks from then, you sure. know, really dying. So she just she just couldn't handle that. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, just a couple of things which I wanted to bring up as dubious moments. Did anybody agree with me that Thorne gets into the Soylent plant too easily? He just jumps yes, on the top of one of these that. things. Does anybody else? <laughs> New York has 40 million people. Doesn't somebody ever <laughs> yes. get to the back of this place? Yes. Yeah. I did think that. No one sees him get on the back of it. No one sees him get off the back of it. No one, there's mm. no, I guess the factory is automated, but even so, it's terribly easy, isn't it, for him to get inside this? Yeah, you just need a camera on the ceiling somewhere. See the top of the truck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you would think yeah, it would be a little more yeah. security because that's their processing center where they... But no, they show them actually making soil and green there, don't they? So that's, if you know that's where they're making soil and green, you'd think they'd have a little more security because people would logically be going yeah. there trying to get food. Yeah, that's true. But then on the other hand, from the point of view of sort of revealing the secret, maybe it doesn't matter because when you think of it, he gets in there and he finds out. And then he comes back out again and he wants to reveal the story. And at the end, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, the story's not going to go anywhere. We know that. It's very clear. Even though he's announcing it to all these people there. It's mm. kind of similar to Brotherhood of the Bell in that respect. Mm-hmm. Like, he's announcing that, but he's on, like, this tabloid TV show and, like, nobody's going to take him seriously, you know? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 Announcing something and nobody cares. <laughs> Yes. I think that's a bit of a kind of a trope almost, isn't it? That the, the, yeah. the hero, the hero gets into place very. I'm, I'm thinking of Bond again. It's either Doctor yeah, No or Goldfinger, where Bond is basically he's put in a cell or something, and he climbs up on the ceiling and manages to get out. There's, <laughs> there's like one person guarding. Him yes. or something. I can't remember which one. Yeah. I suppose it doesn't matter too much. And it's good that it's all there. There's no dialogue in any of that uh, sequence at all, is there? Or, or music, in fact, because you don't really need it. So it's just him going. Yeah. In. I mean, I'd love to know. I sort of. I think I knew what the twist was before I saw it the first time. But I'd love to sort of be able to watch it with someone who ne- who doesn't know the twist and see if they got it before it actually happened. Mm. Um, because it seems so inevitable what's going on. And then it's got that great stunt fall as well, the um, somebody falling onto a kind of like a, a drum oh, almost yeah. and then falling way down onto a conveyor belt. I mean, all that is incredible. And that's yeah. all done for real. There's no faking that. I'd like to know how many bruises that person had. Yeah. <laughs> Was it worth it? They must have been paid for that. <laughs> paid well for that. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree about the music, yeah, because I, I like it when they do that in films where they don't bother with music. Because mm. you also, I think you hear those kind of industrial sounds in the background, yeah. don't you? Yeah. yeah. yeah that reminded it. me of, um, weirdly, The Elephant Man, which is another one, another one of my favourite films. 
my friend Rob Ager, you may have heard of, did a video about that. And he was talking about all through Elephant Man, you can hear industrial noises in the background. Yeah. It's very, very effective, I think. That's Lynch, isn't it? I mean, that's that's a, yes, yes, a yes. Razorhead. A Razorhead, it's, it's, you know, the same kind of industrial. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yes. There was music earlier on in the film, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, which I think actually did work. Well, part of it, I thought, worked well. It was a sort of Charles Ivesian sort of slow mixture of random noises, really, uh, which worked okay. It was very unobtrusive. But then you got this sort of elevator music sound in the rich apartments and also in the euthanasia centre, which was a sort of cheap, tacky sort of sound. And I, I realised why they did that, because it contrasted with the cultural classical music that you got in the Edward yeah. G. Rhodes scene. But I did think, you know, if you think of it realistically, would the elite have put up with that elevator music sound all day long in their apartments? And I'm thinking, no, I don't think they would. It would yeah. drive you nuts, wouldn't it? You know, <laughs> It's so tacky. Because it sort of fits with this mechanical dystopian yeah. idea somehow, doesn't it? Yeah. Sterile. I suppose sterile is the word, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you know, it does fit. If you don't think about it too much, then it makes sense because of that. Sure. The other one I wanted to bring up was it just confused me is when a guy called Donovan, who is a silent operative, gives the young man called Gilbert um, the tool to kill Simonson. Um, he just visits his car and, and gives him this tool to do the job. I thought when I first saw that, I thought that was Thorne, the detective. Because in the previous scene, Thorne had just come down the stairs and gone out the door, you know. Yeah. And then suddenly they cut to this guy walking. I thought, oh, there he goes. That's where he's going. And it confused me. I thought, how does this make any sense? Until later I worked out it must be a different character. I just thought that was a little bit of a, a mistake there. I guess he's wearing the same kind of hat, isn't he? You see? Hats. <laughs> That's it. It's all hats. <laughs> yeah. Something else I, that didn't bother me, but I thought it was a bit of um, a narrative dead end, was the character of Santini, who you kind of see on the poster in the police headquarters, and then there's one one short scene of him, and then that's it. He doesn't really go anywhere. I was expecting the character, yeah. he's the senator, he's near senator, to actually have more presence, more of a presence yes. in the film. I guess he's behind, working behind the scenes, I suppose, is the implication, but I thought there would be more of him. He's on the TV to start with, and then you yeah. see him in that sort of tent where they've got plants, like the only yeah. plants that grow in the city. Mm, yeah. And he's talking to Donovan, his operative, and that's about yeah. it. Actually, I thought um, it was quite revealing that he, he there was a poster of him in the policeman's office, and it said mm. sort of vote Santini or something. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. So this is a kind of corporate fascist state, isn't it? So mm. you've mm. got this guy who you can still vote for, whether it makes any difference or not, but you, there's still some kind of faux democracy going on but you're yeah. voting for a guy who's on the board of Soylent, which is this massive corporation that basically controls the government. It's, yeah, a corporate world is being viewed there, I think. Did it bother you at all that um, the police didn't wear uniforms of any kind? Because normally in those sort of totalitarian states, uniforms are key, aren't they, to sort of keeping control? And and Charlton well, Heston just didn't really seem to be wearing... Yeah, he was more of a detective, though. I suppose so, he was more of a detective, yeah, yeah I guess. Did he look like a detective? Or did I, he looked like a manual worker sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember yeah. what the police were wearing. Were they wearing hard hats? Was that the difference? It's all hats, well, isn't it? Yeah, during that riot scene, they were. Yeah. The riot police. They look yeah. more like um, yeah. security, like goons, you know, rather than mm. police. It was, yeah, that was a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we can get on to some of the themes of this. We've touched on some of it, but um, let's explore to end with just a few of these things. I thought one thing that was very clear that came over was the wealth and power divide you sort of had two classes. You had a sort of mini class, like the vestiges of the middle class, represented by Thorne and Sol. 
But I mean, they were basically living in pretty bad conditions, but at least they had a roof over their heads, as I said before. But basically you had those people who were have-nots um, and you had the, the haves. And there wasn't much in between, really, just this bureaucratic class that sort of hung on to whatever privileges they could just about scrape together um, mm. by stealing things. Because <laughs> um, that's what Thorne does, doesn't he? He steals a lot of these things from Simonson's mm-hmm. apartment. Um, so I thought that was pretty clear, that it's sort of divided into two classes, the middle class essentially gone. Yeah. Uh, honestly, this feels this like the setting of this. Um, I'm looking back at it now. It feels a lot like what they want the Great Reset to be. Is like everybody will have nothing mm-hmm. except for the few elites who will have yes. all the real yes. stuff. It looks very similar to that. Yeah, that. except they say you will be happy, but in truth, you probably yeah. will be <laughs> like you are in soil and green. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, that's yeah. just that we're on this side of it, you know, and that's the propaganda trying to sell it to the. People, and I, I don't know that people are biting on that, but um. <laughs> a lot of people are talking about neo feudalism to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like it's going in that direction. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think? Um, do you think dystopian films? You know, they generally tend to overreach. Do you think yeah. they overreach almost for dramatic effect, or do you think they actually think that is what's coming? Because you're right. It probably, I think it is coming, but it's obviously a very, well, very slow process. Well, my take on this is that listening to uh, the director and Lee Taylor Young talk about this on the commentary, they present it in their commentary as being a warning to the world. And I think, you know, that makes sense because I don't I don't get that it's a particularly negative film in one sense. A lot of it is about overpopulation, but to me, it's not like an eco-fascist kind of film, you know, like saying man is a virus and all that, because there's so much that is humanistic in this film, you know. Um, The lack of value of human beings is lamented consistently throughout the film. So I think it's more a lament of everything of value, including human beings and nature, and just saying, let's not let the world get like this. Um, Mm. That's how I take it anyway. Yeah, I was wondering whether, if you think about 1973, you're looking forward 50 years, you might have expected people to be a bit more different. I don't mean futuristic characters like they're robots or anything, but they just seem like regular people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But uh, I think it seems clear to me that they're morally compromised, but just because of the situation they find themselves in. So mm-hmm. the furniture girls accept that's their lot. That's the best they can do in life. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there are these people who just take on the job of an assassin or stealing things uh, from an apartment. That's just the way to get through. Um mm-hmm. They're just human beings in an extreme situation. Yes. Yeah, because apart from Charlton Heston, there's no one else who's really sort of rebelling. Yeah, just those crowds, obviously, you know, the, the uh, masses well, of the very lower classes, yes. Well, yeah, but they're rebelling because they can't get their food that week. Food. Right, food. There's no one actually protesting against the conditions and what they oh, remember from yeah. the past, etc. is there? I mean, everyone is very oh. docile. That's extent. what I mean. There's a sort of lack of, yeah. Des- yeah, there's definitely a lack of sort of desperation, isn't there? Mm. It's it's because I reckon it's because it's gone too far, and that's part of that message, isn't it? We must not let whatever it is, (laughs) we must Mm -hmm. not let it go that far. I mean, I think it's quite simplistic on the overpopulation message. I think you know it's Malthusian, but it's it's very too many people, not enough food to go around. Um, And I think it's a. I want to put that aside, really, and say that I think it's about this valuing of of what we've got. Um, I think it's a warning, mostly about consumerism, isn't it? you know, industrialization. I, know. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, industrialization. I suppose it's the info dump is the titles, isn't it? The two minutes uh, title sequence is the is the info dump is the explanation. Mm. It's, it's yeah. industrialization. Yeah. But the thing is, mm. how can you avoid industrialization? It's what happens. You know, it's what, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, that, so that's kind of my 
my my criticism of it because that that's yeah the industrial I thought that was very tangentious as I said at the beginning because industrialization leads to overpopulation and then you know whatever wealth people generate gets put back into just creating more human beings everybody ends up just you know cluttered and resources get used up it's all very basic and yeah, it's a bit uh, sim- simplistic isn't it yeah um, whereas you know, there's, there's no there's no recognition there that actually people's lives were improved. By industrialization mm. and there's no recognition mm. of what often people talk about you know demographic winter where you know now people's lives become more wealthy and so they have fewer children and so you know it's it, there's yeah. a lot more complexity to that situation than was presented in that because i think it's just taking that malthusian simplicity and working with it yeah. as an instance of this is what my point i think it's an instance of Oh, let's look after this planet. Because when you, when you listen to those two, as I said before, you know Fleischer and Taylor Young talking in the commentary, that's what they're talking about. Oh, we've got to look after the planet. That's what they're concerned about. And I do think that the main message that I get from this film is the message of consumerism. You know that consumerism has gone absolutely rife to the point where nothing matters except all the things that you can buy, and it goes so far that people themselves end up being the product, you know, in the end. We yeah. consume ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I was thinking, Julian? Uh, this film is only, it's only one hour 35, isn't it? Yeah. Something like that. I think there's a two-hour remake to yeah. really go a bit deeper, mm-hmm. show yeah. us the 40 million, not, you know, don't have to show the whole 40 million, but show <laughs> us a larger scale, go deeper, you know, develop the themes, because it is a bit superficial, I, I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. It's it's entertaining, but don't you think there's a longer film in there somewhere? I absolutely Particularly do. with the modern yeah. technology and everything. The danger, of course, in that is that it could end up just being a CGI action. Well, that, yeah. yes, that is the danger, yes. There, definitely. That's the danger. It has to be in the um, right hands. But, yeah, I mean, what there isn't in Sword and Green, as it stands, is a discussion between Charlton Essence character and someone else in authority who's putting over the points that you make, Julian, mm. saying, well, actually, mm. technology is a good thing and it's improved and healthcare and, and dentistry mm. and all these it's a, you know, yeah. we've got yeah. to have all this therefore this is inevitable this is going to happen there isn't that uh, discussion i mean it's, it's a very emotive film isn't it just for me the power is the emotions um perhaps uh, when you look uh, into uh, it it sort of starts to fall to yeah. pieces slightly yeah yeah well, my fear would be that if it was remade then it would end up being an eco-fascist sort of movie <laughs> you know the yeah, message maybe. would be that oh yeah all these people you know we're all viruses on on mother earth and could be even worse in that direction it just depends yeah. whose hands it's in doesn't it true it depends yeah. who yeah. they get to direct it you know christopher nolan yeah hopefully <laughs> not yeah not michael bay or anything like that <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> if oh, only michael God. winner was still alive he'd be great <laughs> Let's get Oliver Stone to do it, and then you can get your JFK reference in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing that disappointed me, I think, was the the Council of Nations idea. You know, there's this hope, isn't there? That if you could just get the story to the Council of Nations, mm. then, you know, this would be all over or something. And that disappointed me because I thought, well, the world has gone so corrupt in this. Mm. What difference is it going to make going to this Council of Nations that has allowed the world to get into this state anyway? Um, but then there's also that idea that somehow if you've got a global entity, that's going to be the way to sort it out, you know, and I thought, oh, no, here we go again. It's always looking to these yeah. big institutions to sort everything out. And I thought, no, 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 that's not the way to, to sort things out. So I was a little bit disappointed by that. I would yeah. say so by all likelihood, they're probably in, in on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I, did yeah. I mean, they'd have to be probably. I thought it was a bit weird the way they've got these two big books, which the these people pour over, and then they, then they just they've realised this this is all what it means. Sword and Green is people, but we need some proof. 
but hang on, aren't those books the proof? You've just looked at them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's said yeah. it there. So what, 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 you know, what, so somebody ranting about Sordent Green as people is somehow more proof than those <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. books seem a bit odd to me. <laughs> yeah, we don't get any sense of journalism either, do we? Are there any journalists in this world? No, no. We don't get well, any that's, of that, that's, do we? That's very prescient though, isn't it? I mean, who needs journalists these days? <laughs> yeah. Maybe there are, but they're just called disinformation agents and ignored. Yeah. I suppose they might introduce <laughs> smartphones if they remade it. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Probably implantable technology too. Yes, yes. I think if they remade it, um, social media would feature very heavily, wouldn't it, as a way of sure. you know subjugating people. And there would be wall-to-wall televisions, probably showing plants and animals and nature all the time to everyone to just to, to sort of pacify them. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But when if they made it yeah. now, when would they set it? How many years in the future do you think? Yeah, twenty seventy-two, I suppose. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Perhaps it's best not to mention the date. That's always the safest thing. Yeah, I think. yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few years later. Yeah. <laughs> In the not too distant future. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I thought is if they were making it now, they would have uh, gone for programmable digital money and, and universal basic income. Because I mean, these most of these people are not working. They must be receiving mm. benefits. Well, it must be a universal basic income, must not it? But they've got money in their hands and they can spend it every Tuesday. And they've yeah. got to spend it pretty quickly. And if they don't spend it, then presumably it's run out until next time. So I thought, yeah, uh, programmable digital money would would work very well for a new version of this. You get a crypto coins that are only redeemable on a certain day of the week, you know. Yeah. And they use the, the blockchain to make sure that it's not used or something. Yeah. And only soylent products. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we found right. lots of holes in this film. <laughs> it was going so well. Like we were all going how great it was. And now we, yeah. we really, uh, I still think it's a good film. But It is a good film. I think it's it's a measure of the, the respect we have for the film, isn't it? That we've bothered to see holes in. Do you know what I mean? We've taken it that yeah, seriously yeah, yeah. so much. And then I've started thinking, ah, okay, well, this could be improved here and there. Uh, you wouldn't do that unless you actually love the film, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. To end with... Um, a uh, well, it's a quote from a German film encyclopedia that I found. I think it was on Wikipedia. I thought it was quite a good quote. Um, although I would quibble slightly with the the word capitalist here, I might substitute a crony capitalist or something like that, or corporatist. Here's the quote. I think it's a good quote. If you want, you can see a thrilling crime thriller in this film. By means of the brutally resonant scenes, however, the director makes clear a far deeper truth. Soylent Green must be understood as a metaphor. It is the radical image of the self-consuming madness of capitalist mode of production. Oh, well, so I would change that. Corporatist mode of production. The necessary consequence of the reification of human material to the point of self-destruction are forcefully brought home to the viewer. I like that last sentence. Nice. The consequence of the reification of human material to the point of self-destruction forcefully brought home to the viewer. So we become the product and we eat ourselves. Yeah. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Point. I did want to ask you, yeah, about the symbolism of humans eating each other without realising they're eating each other. There must be something there. I don't know what it is, but... <laughs> this is actually a good point, um, Julian. I think you and I had kind of discussed just recently about how... Um, there seems to be this underlying theme of cannibalism that pops up here and there, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I had just sent you an article where the New York Times had just recently put out an article saying that there's a time and place for cannibalism or something. 
I have it here. It's called A Taste for Cannibalism? Question mark. A spate mm. of recent stomach-churning books, TV shows, and films suggest we've never looked so delicious to one another. Oh. Yeah, oh, it mentions a number of cultural things, a TV series called Yellow Jackets, um, a novel called A Certain Hunger, a film from this year called Fresh, Tender is the Flesh, a dystopian novel, 2020, Raw, a film from 2016, yeah, so it uh, seems to be in vogue at the moment. Talking about yeah, cannibalism. there was a TV show too, Santa Clarita, I think, which had to do with cannibalism. I guess you all know uh, what predictive programming is, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, the idea. Of that's what I was thing. thinking. Yeah, uh, that's what, that's the, kind of the angle I was going with Julian, because I, I had told him that there's um, photos, you, you, you can find them online, of different celebrities at these parties that look like they're a cannibal party. So, like, they have yeah. these tables made up to where there's, like, it looks like a dismembered person with blood everywhere. And it's like a supposed oh. to be like a dinner event or something as like i've seen one picture had like gwen stefani and like different celebrities um yeah and, and that gets into a whole nother weird direction i guess but it's kind of weird that there's this kind of fascination with cannibalism a, a seeming fascination with people who are so-called elite you know yeah. I, I think we say I, I tend to think this is a coincidence um yeah, yeah i think so too you know, yeah i don't I, think this I, movie I also tend to think it's no, no, and I, I think it's, you know, where can you next go to be sensational and get an audience? I think that's yeah. as cynical as that, really. But it is just an amazing coincidence that the same theme should pop up in exactly the same year as the film yeah. was set. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another famous article, Julian, isn't there, called Normalising the Unthinkable, that we've talked about lots of times. And this sort of predictive programming, it, I'm sure your audience knows what it is, but it's when themes are put in TV shows in advance to almost prepare the oh, public yeah. to accept something, you know. What was I, um, I don't know if it was a podcast or a book I was listening to, they were saying, when you're talking about horrendous things done by powerful people, first you, something like, first you deny it and then you normalise it. I don't yeah. know where that came from. Where did that come from? <laughs> I can't remember. You deny it and then when you, when you can't deny it anymore, then you find a way of normalising it. Um, you, <laughs> right. Which uh, I, th- yeah. I think is absolutely what happens in many of the, not, not necessarily with cannibalism, but with any of these dark things. Yeah. Because if you... You know, I observe this all the time with, with my family and people I talk to. Suddenly things which a couple of years ago you thought, oh, you're a mad conspiracy theorist or you're paranoid. Mm. People just accept mm. it and it because it just drifts into the culture. And it's a very, very subtle thing, but it happens everywhere if you look for it. You know? Well, maybe that's what would happen at the end of Soil and Green if it continued. That The information mm. about, yeah, it's all people would just get out to everybody mm. and people would just accept it eventually and just say, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. We've yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah, have yeah, any yeah, choice, yeah. would there? There's no, there's no plankton left in the sea, so there actually would be no choice with yeah. them to accept that situation if you'd yeah, let the world get into a, such a state. This is the thing... To have people... No, no, I was going to say, no, it would have been quite a, a brave thing to do, but to have a dystopian future where people knew that that's what they were eating was, was other people <laughs> yes. and they were okay with it, you know. <laughs> but that's the thing, that's yeah. the thing. I think they'd get used to it. Like, if I can, if you don't mind me mentioning the Beatles once, just once. You know the Paul McCartney is dead rumour that he might have died yeah. in 1960. I don't believe that, by the yeah. way. Whenever I'm on Beatles shows, because I'm sort of captain conspiracy in the Beatles world, you know, um, <laughs> they always ask me, what do you think about Paul McCartney is dead? Of and the course, only original yeah. thing I can come up with nowadays, I said, if Paul McCartney went on TV and said, actually, yeah, I did die. I'm fezzing up. I am William Campbell or Billy Shears. Within a couple of months, I reckon everyone would get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> as, as bad as that sounds. Everyone yeah. would go, oh, that's a bit weird about Paul McCartney, but the news cycle, there'd be a there'd be a hundred more news stories in the next three months. 
And people yeah. would go, oh, that's that weird about Paul McCartney. And, and, they'd also, thinking, and a lot of people would also say, yeah, and we always thought that, even though they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing it's that like, people do, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's like with these COVID measures, loads of people coming out saying, oh, yeah, I didn't really uh, believe in them after all, you know, and trying to re- rewrite their own history. Mm-hmm. So no one wants to feel like they've been duped, you know. Absolutely. Mm. You've hit on something perfect there, Frank. <laughs> yeah, because I've been, you know, I mean, the last two and a half years, if nothing else, has been a fascinating sort of anthropological <laughs> study. Yes. If you're into yeah. it. And I, I've just been, you know, I said, I'm just using my family because I see them often. But the things that they are now accepting... I think it's because of the news cycle. Everything just gets moved on so, so quickly. And I think the majority of people, quite rightly perhaps, want to keep up with the latest news. But it has this effect where you almost just forget what was going on a year ago, you know, Uh because it's just moving so fast. Do you think people will forget meat in due course? (laughs) Will we be happy with eating cricket protein and things in future? Do you think we'll all forget it and say, oh, yeah, it's completely normal. We eat these new faux meat products. And Oh, yeah. I don't think it'll catch on. (laughs) 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 I mean, I've been been eating this year, and I I don't know if they're any good, but those um, no meat, you know, the kind of bacon, the sausages. um, Mm -hmm. I'm not really mad on soy protein myself. Yeah. But I've been experimenting with it, and I... You know, you just get, I think we all just get used to things very quickly, don't we? You know, humans are very adaptable. And I've almost forgotten about, you know, I buy this minced beef that's not minced beef. Really? And I I don't know if it's me or it's everybody, but you just get used to it. Yeah. It's one thing we're very good at, isn't it? I've actually tried the cricket, like chips that had cricket protein in them. Mm-hmm. They weren't terrible, but like I wouldn't say that they're, you know, that's nothing mm. really special. You know? no. well, I ate crickets Dude. when I was in Thailand, but they were so gar- oh, okay. they were garnished with so much oil and salt, they could have been almost anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I don't mind the idea of eating crickets. What bothers me is getting rid of thousands of years of normal food supply and then yeah, you know I potentially agree. handing over our food production to corporations which could end up to be like the soylent corporation you know massive yeah. entities upon which we are increasingly dependent and part of this mm. control grid and i think that is very dangerous yeah, yeah some of the, a lot of the farmland <laughs> yeah a lot of the farmland is that's being bought up it it's not just being bought up by corporate interests it's being bought by china so that's another danger you know um yeah. the ccp owning like farmland everywhere and then on top of that you know we have bill gates here buying a yes. lot of farmland yeah it really is not no. billionaires charge of massive food production no it really is not no especially when they're psychos yes indeed <laughs> yeah psychos with man boobs even worse yeah yes. <laughs> well i'd uh talking about food changing yeah i mean i'm, I'm a massive fruit eater and i've got to say the fruit that i buy in the supermarket i've just moved back to england the last year and a half to me, it's unrecognizable from the fruit I got in Spain because it was that much closer to the source. I don't know what these oranges are that I'm eating now. It sort of tastes vaguely of oranges, but, mm. you know, obviously there's not much seasonal fruit in England. So I'd say the fruit we're, I'm eating is, is <laughs> almost unrecognizable, honestly. Yeah, I seem to remember enjoying fruit abroad more than I do here. <laughs> we don't do fruit in this country, do we? Really? Uh, the fruit the fruit in Spain where, where I was living into a year in Africa is just oh, it's lovely. Oranges, bananas. One day you'll forget it, Anthony, when you're eating soylent fruit. You'll forget yeah, what the real fruit tastes like. <laughs> yeah, I think I've forgotten already, to be honest. That's a year and a half back in England. but uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, I think uh, I think we've done this film. Mm. Um, fantastic film. I know we've poked holes in it, but I love it. I think it's a, a wonderful film. And, yeah, it could be remade. 
and I'm sure that could be successful. But I enjoy it as it is. And uh, there are a lot of good messages in there. For me, the main message is let's not let let the world get into that state, either environmentally speaking or corporately speaking, because I don't want to be eating cricket crackers for the rest of my life, <laughs> even though they may taste nice. I, I don't I don't want all that to be in the hands of a few billionaires. Thanks very much. We need to be yeah. diversified and uh, doing things on as small and local a level as possible in all things. Um, mm. So thanks ever, ever so much for all three of you for coming on again. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak to you. And um, yeah, look forward to next time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. You always know it's a good film review because stuff has come in in the moment. I've yeah, suddenly absolutely. reassessed all the stuff I thought before we had this conversation. So it's obviously been a good one. Next movie is Deathbed, the bed that eats, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Actually, the next one may be a very British coup. Um, did you get that? Oh, nice. Have you got that DVD, Mark? Did you get it? Yeah, yeah, you sent it to me. I've got that. Good. Thank you very much. Have you seen that, Mark? No, no, I did. Oh, you'll love I've, it. Yeah. Don't anything about it. So it'd be good. It's got some yeah. similarity to the British House of Cards, but I think it's actually better. I was going to say when you mentioned it to me, I did, my first thought was House of Cards, which again I haven't seen. So um, yeah, no, I've I not seen it, that either. No. Yeah, I think it's just better. I think the main guy. What's the name of the main actor, Julie? Ray McAnally? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Ray McAnally. brilliant. Yeah. He was brilliant, wasn't he? He really was. Yeah. And, Keith, and Keith Allen's in it. He's also very good in that. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Yes Minister, but with real murders in, isn't it? So. Yes, yes. It's House of Cards <laughs> meets Yes Minister. As opposed to the fake murders, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much, Chaps. Okay. <laughs> Love you all. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guests, Frank Johnson, Mark Campbell, and Anthony Rattuno, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.